If you guys have been a regular attender for, or even just stopped by once or twice in the last 30 years or so, you've probably seen me before. Uh, my name is Matthias Austin, and I started attending Faith Covenant Church two weeks old, one week old, four days old. So I've been a regular attender here at Faith Covenant uh, since I was four days old. I was uh, baptized in this church. I went through confirmation in this church, and now I am the worship coordinator in this church. That's my job. And uh, you've seen me up there already today because I accidentally double booked myself. Uh, you maybe saw me over in choir. You maybe saw me back at the computer running PowerPoint during their services. But this is actually my first sermon ever. I've done some dramas before, but never a sermon. Uh, and so some of you might be wondering, why are you doing a sermon? Where is this coming from? And I got really excited when I saw what this worship series wa- or this sermon series was because it's just a list of questions. And uh, one of my other jobs is I am a coach for the Hinsdale Central speech team. And uh, the event that I coach, one of them, is extemporaneous speaking. And that's an event where you uh, kids will draw out three questions, current event questions, and now they've changed the rules. So if you used to know how it went, it's even harder now. You now have 30 minutes to write a seven-minute speech. Um, and you use sources and all that stuff. And, and so I coach that event. I teach kids how to answer questions. So when I saw a whole sermon series about answering questions, I was like, yeah, I feel like I could maybe take a crack at this. Uh, and when I was looking at the list of questions, the one that really jumped out to me was, is the Bible reliable? Uh, for a lot of reasons. One, because I'm a history nerd. But the main thing is we use the Bible a lot during our church services. I mean, Pastor Nate already talked to the kids about that. We, we sing, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, it's the first thing you see when you walk in on our communion table. It's the Bible and the cross. Those are the first two things you see when you walk into our sanctuary. Uh, and in fact, if you're familiar with the covenant denomination, you know that the sort of unofficial motto of the covenant is, where is it written? Because we don't want to be saying anything that isn't based in Scripture. And so when I looked at the question, is the Bible reliable, really jumped out to me because we need to answer this question. Because I know I can't be the only one. There have been times in my life where I've questioned that myself. Where I looked at this book and said, "Ah, there's some good ideas in there, but what if it's not true? What if it's a lie? And it's a question that everybody wrestles with, whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian. Everybody must address the question, is this book reliable? And so today, I'm going to try to answer that question. I'll be giving a very brief overview of a lot of these things. This is, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of books written on this topic. I'm only going to scratch the surface of the surface of this. Um, but I do believe we can answer the question, yes, the Bible is reliable. And we conceive that for three reasons. The first is that it is uh, historically reliable. The second is that the New Testament manuscript evidence is overwhelming. And the third reason is that the Bible is reliable. And the actual death and resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened. Because there is no way you could make that up in that time. You could not fake that. So we're going to get into this today. Um, So my first point is that the Bible is reliable because it is historically reliable. And I need to make a quick clarification here. Because 
Not, and this is going to sound controversial, but I promise it isn't. Not every part of the Bible is meant to be historical. And by that I mean the Bible is full of different literary genres, right? So you have histories, but you also have poetry and wisdom and proverbs and prophecy and it even ends with an apocalypse, right? These are all individual literary genres that uh, need to be interpreted in their own way and understood in their own context. Um, For example, the, the book of Job is in the wisdom section of the Old Testament, and many scholars believe it is a, a literary device to teach a point about God rather than a literal historical story about a man named Job. And so when you read it that way, it, it totally changes how you read it and what message you get from it. And in case you think that I'm you know, trying to just be a, a rabble-rouser here, uh, this is what C.S. Lewis says on this topic. He says, The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to Jesus. We must not use the Bible, our ancestors too often did, as a sort of encyclopedia out of which texts, isolated from their context and read without attention to the whole nature and purport of the books in which they occur, can be taken for use as weapons. So, with all that in mind we can still say the Bible is historically reliable because there is real history in this Bible. And the parts of the Bible that are intended to be read as history are verifiably true. Let's first look at the Old Testament. And I had to cut some examples here because I got really excited about biblical archaeology and all of that, and I had way too many examples, so I had to cut them back. But... For a long time, in much of, the history, uh, much of the history of the Old Testament was disregarded as mythical tales by imaginary kings. Now, it spoke of real places like Egypt and Israel, places like that. So nobody thought that this was like a, a Middle Earth or Narnia kind of situation. But they did, historians did for a long time tend to think of it more like, like Harry Potter or King Arthur. Right? It's set in the real world, but with fake people doing imaginary things. However... Archaeologists regularly find proof of Old Testament people and places that were believed at one point to be fake. Now, in 1994, my first example here, uh, archaeologists found the first evidence of King David. Now, for years, the only mention of King David came from the Bible. There was nothing else in the history. But an Aramean stele, the Tel Dan stele, I think it's called, shows an account of the victory of the Arameans over the armies of Israel and it specifically refers to the house of David. So it it talks about this dynastic line of King David. So we now have extra-biblical evidence that David was not made up. We know the Arameans were a real empire, and they're talking about this victory over the armies of Israel led by the house of David. So we know that David is real and that he was the leader of ancient Israel. And here's another example. Uh, For a long time in the historical record, there was no mention of King Belshazzar of the Babylonians, who's mentioned in the book of Daniel. Now, Nabonidus was seen as the last king of Babylon. And in the book of Daniel, it says Belshazzar came after him, and, and nobody thought that was real. But there have been tablets recently discovered that talk about Belshazzar being Nabonidus's son and his co regent of Babylon. So in Daniel 5, when Belshazzar appoints Daniel to the third highest place in the kingdom, it's because Belshazzar himself is number two and Nabonidus is number one. So this person who no one thought existed turned out to not only be real, but his historically verifiable position showed a clear reason why Daniel was given 
the third highest place in the kingdom. So we're, we're finding this evidence, right? And my last Old Testament example is probably my favorite. Um, in the book of Jeremiah 39.3, it says, Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nergal Sherazar of Samgar, Nebo Sarkasim, a chief officer, Nergal Sherazar, a high official. Yes, there are two of them that must have been like John in the Babylonian times when it came to first names. And all the other officials of the king of Babylon. So that's a list of, of several minor people in uh, the king of Babylon's court, right? Fairly important, but not anybody that anybody really knows about. Uh, so imagine right now, if we were to jump ahead 2,400 years, what are the odds we would find documented proof that Thomas Jefferson's Secretary of the Navy in 1801 was Benjamin Stoddard? And not only have that in record, but find a document that Benjamin Stoddard signed with his official seal. I mean, 2,400 years is a ridiculously long time in the archaeological world. Things disappear much quicker than 2,400 years. But in 2007, an Assyrian cuneiform tablet was found bearing the name Nebo Sarkisim. It was a receipt for a shipment of gold to the temple in Babylon. It referred to Nebo Sarkisim as the chief eunuch of the king and was dated 10 years before the events described in Jeremiah. So this very minor person in the king of Babylon's court, who we have no right to know anything about, we found proof that he was real and that he was written about in Jeremiah. It's the same person. So all of that is to say we are regularly finding evidence that confirms the Old Testament is full of real people doing real things in real places. And it's not just the Old Testament that has been proven reliable. There is extra-biblical evidence for the existence of numerous people in the New Testament as well. Let's first look at uh, Pontius Pilate, the Roman official who officially sentenced Jesus to death. Now, for a long time, we had no proof at all Pontius Pilate existed. Nothing. None of the Roman records seemed to show him. We, di we didn't have anything. But in 1961, a stone was found in the city of Caesarea Maritima. It was only partially intact, but the words that they could read said, <clears throat> to the divine Augustus Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated. Now, a prefect in the Roman times was a ruler of one of the less important territories, sort of a step down from the governor, um, which lines up because Israel was one of the less important territories of the Roman Empire, and the reign of Tiberius was from 14 to 37 AD, which lines up perfectly with the biblical narrative. Additionally, a recent computer scan of a copper ring found in Israel reveals the name Pilate, and it was likely used by lesser officials to send messages and decrees in his name. So we have proof that a major player in the New Testament story is real. And we can also look to the writing of uh, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. Now, um, I want to give you some background about him uh, so you know why he's a reputable source. Uh, he was a Jewish man born in 37 AD, died around 100 AD. So he lived and wrote in the time immediately following uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, he was a Jewish general who eventually defected to Rome and aided the Roman legions in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, after which point he moved to Rome. And he's viewed by most historians as one of the best resources about what life was like in first century Rome at the time. 
In fact, in uh, 2018, New York Times ran an article called Rome Through the Eyes of Flavius Josephus, which talked about how reliable he was at just showing what day-to-day life was like, not even the major events, just what it was like to wake up in Rome and the sun coming in and seeing it set and all that stuff. So he's a very well-respected author and historian, and he's near contemporary to all the gospel writers. And he gives us evidence of several key players in the New Testament. This is what he says about John the Baptist. Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly as a punishment of what he did against John that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him who was a good man. Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people, might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion. Accordingly, he was sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper and was there put to death. Now it's important to note there is virtually no argument in this scholarly world that this is a real text. There's nothing from modern historians that says, yeah, this is probably fake. I mean, it is taken for granted that John the Baptist existed and was killed by King Herod. Now, he, uh, Josephus also wrote this about another uh, set of biblical characters, actually. So the high priest assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. Again, this too has been met with universal acceptance from the scholarly world. And it serves both as proof of James, the brother of Jesus, and of Jesus himself. See, Jesus was a fairly common name in the Middle East at that time. And so by inserting who was called Christ, it let Josephus' audience know which Jesus they were talking about. The one that people kept saying was the Messiah, that guy. He's the brother of him. That's who's there. And just so we're not reliant on one source, this is what the Roman historian Tacitus says about Jesus and the early church. At at this point, he's he's trying to pin the blame on the burning of Rome on Christians. Uh, And so he's saying, these people are called Christians by the populace. Christus, from, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. So we've got proof. The Roman historians, Tacitus, one of the big guys in Roman history that tells us so much about the early Roman Empire, says, yeah, those guys, they're, they're the followers of Christ, the guy that we killed. And not the guy we allegedly killed, not the guy that people say we killed, the real guy that you all know we killed because the word had spread at that point. So we have regular extra-biblical evidence at the Old and New Testament and the major players in those, and so we can see the Bible is reliable. Now the second reason we can see the Bible is reliable is by looking at the overwhelming evidence within the New Testament manuscripts. Now, if we're talking about manuscripts, uh, we're talking about the physical or paper papyrus documents that contain the New Testament. Sometimes it's a verse or two, sometimes it's a whole chapter, sometimes, if we're lucky, it's a whole book, right? But the fact that 2,000 years later we have any pieces of physical parchment with legible writing on them is incredible. Have you ever gone through old papers in your house? Papers from 15 years ago are already weathered and turning yellow. Papers from 50 years ago are virtually falling apart. And if you've got old family documents, you've got to like get get out a magnifying glass and really hope that the thing from 75 or 100 years ago, you can make out two words on it. And yet 2,000 years later, 
we have an overwhelming number of New Testament manuscripts. And the age of them is astonishing. See, one of the uh, earliest ones that we have is from the Gospel of John. It's the part of the Gospel story where Jesus is before Pilate on trial. And uh, that is dated between 125 and 175 A.D. Or, in other words, between 1800 and 1900, 1,900 years ago. And we can read it. And we know that it matches what we have currently in our Bible in John. We have a fragment from the book of Mark, chapter 1, from 150 to 200 A.D. And there's this really crazy compilation uh, called the Diatessaron from between 165 and 175. Now, the Diatessaron was this, like, compilation that somebody put together of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tried to put them into one account to make it, you know, just one thing instead of four different Gospel stories. Uh, And for a variety of reasons, we don't stick with that format today. But it shows that in 165, the four Gospels were widespread enough that somebody had the ability to even do this. That somebody said, you know, I've been reading all these Gospels that have been around forever. I think I could put this into one thing. And that's from 165. Now, we obviously, uh, these are also just obviously copies. And I say obviously because if I wrote down on a piece of paper, give Matthias $20. And I said, okay, everybody else, copy this down. Spread it throughout the world. Spread it everywhere you can. Give Matthias $20. And then 2,000 years from now, Somebody finds a scrap of paper that says, give Matthias $20. What are the odds they found the first one that I wrote? It's, it's impossible, right? It, it's virtually impossible. Uh, experts believe that every book from the New Testament was originally written before 100 AD, and the earliest books were written within a few decades, 10 or 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. In other words, these accounts were written at a time when people would still be alive to refute any claims made. And yet, the spread of the gospel continued. If this was unreliable testimony, it would have been quashed immediately. If somebody said, yeah, this Jesus guy, he didn't really exist, there would be people there going, well, yeah, but except this huge crowd of people saw him when he fed the 5,000. We were there. (laughs) That's why they wrote it down. I could say, yeah, I was there for that. But... It spread at an incredible speed throughout the ancient world. And the manuscript evidence shows how reliable the Bible is because not only do we have so much, there's so much agreement between the manuscripts that we do have. Now, at present, we have almost 5,800 manuscripts, 5,800 manuscripts, including some amount, whether a fragment or whole books, of New Testament writings. Compare that to the writings we have of the famous Roman historian Tacitus. We talked about him earlier somebody widely regarded as uh, reliable in the historical world. Tacitus lived from the 50s AD to the 120s AD, and he's just renowned as one of the best historians of Rome. We have three of his manuscripts, all written in the 800s AD. This is what apologist Josh McDowell says. All told, the sheer number of New Testament manuscripts and the earliness of the extant manuscripts give us great reason to believe the New Testament accurately transmit the contents of the original. There are more than 2.6 million pages. That equates to one mile of New Testament manuscripts and 2.5 miles for the entire Bible compared with an average of four feet of manuscript by the average classical writer. Combining the Old and New Testament, we have more than 66 
1,000 manuscripts and scrolls. One mile versus four feet. We have a lot of New Testament to work with. And the thing is, they all completely agree with each other in every matter of doctrine that is important to Christians. There might be some paraphrases or misspellings, a translation error or a word left out here or there, but this is what Paul Wenger, a professor of Old Testament studies at Phoenix Seminary, says. He says, it's important to underscore two facts. One, the verbal agreement between various New Testament manuscripts is closer than between many English translations of the New Testament, And two, the percentage variance in the New Testament is small, and no matter of doctrine hinges on a variant reading. The things that are important to the faith, Jesus being the real Son of God, who was fully human and fully divine, at no point is that contradicted in the 5,800 manuscripts we have of the New Testament. And so by looking at the volume and agreement of the New Testament manuscripts, we see that the Bible is reliable. And finally, we can see that the Bible is reliable because it is perhaps the worst way anyone could ever fake a religion if they wanted it to succeed. Now, you guys may have heard the phrase, well, it's just so crazy it might work. That's almost never true. It's crazy for a reason. A better phrase would be, it's just so well thought out and perfectly executed, it just might work. And even then, it sometimes doesn't, right? Crazy plans are crazy for a reason. If you wanted to fool a lot of people into believing you, you'd probably want to make uh, grandiose statements of uh, earthly security and wealth and have the richest and most elite, the popular people, the people that everybody in society looks at and says, those are the guys I want to be like. That's who you get for your spokespeople, right? I mean, that's the reason that famous athletes get sponsorship, you know? Uh, Tiger Woods, back when he was somebody we liked to talk about, uh, he, he repped Nike because people would... That Nike wanted people to associate their brand with that guy. It happens all the time. It's just good marketing. But in Christianity, we see the exact opposite happened. Let's first look at the role women played in the gospel narrative. See, it's, it's not a controversial statement, I don't think, to say that women throughout the span of history haven't always had the best time of things. <laughs> Right? I mean, that's, that's, not, that's something we can't really argue when looking at the huge expanse of human history. Women have kind of had a rough time. And this was especially true during the first century AD. This is what the uh, Talmud, the Jewish oral tradition, describes the day-to-day life of women in first century AD. It says, They are swathed like a mourner, referring to their face and hair coverings, isolated from people and shut up in prison. In a highly religious culture, Jewish women were only allowed into a small section of the temple, the women's court, and they were forbidden, absolutely forbidden, to pray in public. Wasn't allowed. Women had a rough time, and then Jesus comes along, and in his teaching, he is meeting with women, teaching them, and elevating their role. Author Java Glazer, a Jewish Christian, says it this way, Often it was the women who were the most appreciative of his ministry. Indeed, the first proclaimer of Jesus to the Jewish people was a woman, Anna in the temple, in Luke 2. A woman washed the Savior's feet, Luke 7, and anointed him for his burial, Mark 14. It was women who were with him at the cross until the end, Mark 15, and women who were the first to come to the tomb, John 20, and proclaim his resurrection, Matthew 28. 
Women were at the center of Jesus' ministry. And in a patriarchal and male-dominated society like first century Israel, surrounded by an even more male-dominated Roman Empire, it would be lunacy to make the primary witnesses to the key points of your message, if you were trying to fake this thing, female. You wouldn't do it. You just wouldn't. That would be like saying, hey, you know who you should really talk to? These ex-cons. They know a lot about being trustworthy here. That's what the society would have thought about the women at that time being the key witnesses to the resurrection. And it's not just the women. The behavior of the men who founded this religion is laughable. The disciples and followers of Christ were not the people that you would try to get to be your charismatic leaders to sell a lie to the public. All right, this is a quick rundown of some of the main founders of Christianity. And remember, this is all the stuff that they put in the Gospels. If the Bible is fake, this is what is on the propaganda posters. Peter, a fisherman, which means he was relatively uneducated and fairly far down the social ladder. He denies even knowing Jesus three times. He's shown to be impulsive, and Jesus himself says, Get behind me, Satan in reference to his thick-headedness. James and John, the brothers, also fishermen, they get chastised by Jesus for arguing like children over who gets to have the best seat in heaven. They're the kids in the back of the car saying, no, I want the seat by the window. I don't want the middle seat. I want that one. Matthew, a tax collector. Now, uh, this time of year especially, we, we tend to think of... Uh, IRS auditors, things like that, and we think of them in a very, very negative light, which is bad enough, right? But the taxes that Matthew was collecting went to Rome, the empire forcibly occupying their land. So when we're talking about a tax collector in first century Jerusalem, we're not talking about an IRS auditor. We're thinking Nazi sympathizer in Vichy, France. That is the equivalent of what Matthew was to this society. Thomas doubted that claims that Jesus even rose from the dead. Simon was a zealot, which means he was basically a rabble-rouser, someone who got all sorts of negative attention from the authorities. Paul actively persecuted and abetted the murders of Christians before he became a follower of Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, who along with the rest of his family, thought Jesus was insane during his early ministry. These are the heroes of the faith. This is what they said about themselves to try to win people to their side. Can you imagine looking at that group of people and saying, I want to join up with you guys. You really seem to have it together. I mean, the only reason they would write that down is if it was true. You just wouldn't make that up about yourself. And uh, let's look at, at the promises, the results of what is offered to the followers of Jesus. A repeated message throughout the Gospels is that you'd be despised and rejected by everyone for following Christ. Paul, during his ministry, was beaten, jailed, shipwrecked, chased out of towns by mobs, and eventually killed. He gained nothing from this. He relied on handouts from churches. We're told that the early church shared everything, sold their possessions to care for each other's needs. So nobody's getting rich from this. No one is gaining power. I mean, if you were lying about this, what, what in the world is your endgame? There's no motive. I mean... Think of uh, a modern cults, right? Um, even ones that start with good intentions. Think about Jonestown or the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. All of these leaders of these cults 
started getting all these special privileges. Weird child marriages, things like that, finding all the ways to bend the rules so they could get what they wanted. There is no evidence that that happened anywhere in the early church. And in case you wanted more evidence that this is the worst lie in the history of the world, this is what happened to all of the apostles who followed Jesus. Peter was crucified. Andrew was crucified. James was beheaded. John, the only one not martyred, exiled on Patmos, a prison island. Philip, stoned and crucified. Nathaniel, stoned, crucified, and beheaded. Matthew, speared to death. Thomas, speared to death. James the Less was either stoned or crucified. They're not sure. Simon crucified, Judas, not Iscariot, clubbed to death, Paul beheaded, and Matthias, the guy that they got to replace somebody else, was either crucified or dismembered. You ready to sign up? (laughs) You think this is a good deal? Because this is what they're telling people. This is what the church is saying. Hey, you join us, probably going to happen to you. And yet, (laughs) it spread. The gospel message spread. I mean, why in the world would anyone carry out a lie to that extreme without anything benefiting themselves personally? What are they getting out of this? I mean, there's a a fantastic quote by the Christian author Chuck Colson, who you guys might know as one of the key players in the Watergate scandal in the 70s. He became a Christian while serving time in prison, and this is what he said. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Church, the Bible is reliable because no sane person, no conspiracy would use these people who lived and died in these ways to sell a lie that gives you nothing. And so, when we return to the question, is the Bible reliable, we can see that the answer is a clear yes. It is historically reliable. It's reliable when you look at the sheer amount in the New Testament manuscripts that agrees with each other. And it's reliable because no lie could ever spread in that time by those people. Only the truth could prosper. Now, there are more reasons, of course, uh, but that should be enough for now for even the most skeptical to to take pause. Now, I said I, I coach extemp, and if this were an extemp speech, I'd be done by now. I hit my conclusion, and I'm way past my seven minutes. But this is not an extemp speech, this is a sermon. So I have a little bit more to add. The question has been answered. Another question arises. So what? What does it mean that the Bible is reliable? And it means different things to the skeptic than it does to the Christian. To the skeptic, you might still be saying, okay, you said a lot of good stuff. I get it, there's history, these people existed. But we're still talking about a book that's full of magic. Somebody walking on water, making fish appear out of nowhere. You expect me to buy that? You expect me to find that reliable? And my answer to those people is, go on our website, listen back to some of the sermons in this series. 
Because if God is real, and if Jesus is really the Son of God, then that isn't a problem. Because if the God of the universe, who created all things, the guy who wrote the laws of physics needs to bend them, he can. And maybe you're a skeptic because you've seen some pretty bad behavior from Christians. And that's a group you don't want to be a part of. Maybe you've seen the Crusades looking through history. You think about Klansmen lynching somebody on Saturday night and then going to church the next morning. Maybe it's just people in your life that, you know, they seem a little greedy. They seem a little bit petty. I don't want to be a part of that group. I want to show you a picture of a bridge. Uh, this is a, a bridge in Georgia, near Jekyll Island. My wife Cassie and I were there for a, uh, a wedding of a family friend with Cassie's parents last year. And we saw this bridge going out over this river that cuts into this swamp. And a lot of us really wanted to go on that bridge because we thought you could get a really cool view from the top. Uh, but my mother-in-law, Cassie's mom, is not a fan of bridges. She, she has a bridge phobia. Anybody here afraid of bridges? Anybody getting a little nervous? Sarah, a little nervous driving over bridges? Well, this, this part's for you then. Um, <laughs> she said, yeah, I, I know bridges collapse sometimes. That bridge might not be reliable. I'm not going up there because what if it collapses? And I think that's a lot like the argument, you know, I don't like the behavior of Christians, so I'm not going to look at Christianity. Because the mathematics that says hey, a bridge is reliable, is either true or false. I mean, that's just how math works. It either works or it doesn't. It's either correct or not. And just because an engineer does the math incorrectly, just because a builder might use faulty materials, just because a manufacturer might cheap out on something, it doesn't change the fact that the math that says bridges will stay up is still true. This book is reliable even when Christians aren't. The mathematics of Scripture is still true even if we screw up the equation. It doesn't change the fact that this is reliable. And uh, to those of you here who are Christians today, we also can learn something from the Bible being reliable. And it's this. We need to make sure we're doing what the Bible says. Remember, that Jesus ate with tax collectors and prostitutes, but staved his strongest words of condemnation for the Pharisees, the religious leaders whose self-righteousness blinded them, and their holier-than-thou attitude turned people away. Their eyes were blind to the needs of the world around them, and they didn't care for the poor and needy in their midst. Never let the desire to be right prevent you from showing people the love of God. We are the witnesses to the reliability of the Bible. People aren't going to pick this up until they look at us. And so we can never be the reason somebody chooses not to open this book. Church, we have an incredible, all-powerful, all-loving God. And he loves us so much, he didn't just leave us alone to figure this out. He sent us his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and raise him again so we could be reconciled to God and he gave us his word so that we could always know how much he loves us and what his plans are for us. We can trust God. 
We can trust his word, and we can trust his promises. Amen.